Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. You may be seated, and if we were in a, a liturgical service, the, the answer to that would be often, thanks be to God, and, and yet you hear the passage and you say, is thanks be to God the response that I would make to that? There's, there's some heaviness to that passage, and maybe a, a response we might make is maybe close to God help us or something like, like that. It takes some work to process. If you're visiting, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here today. If you were here last week, I, I got to take a week off preaching. I actually went away for a couple of days, and then went on, on a silent retreat, which if you've never done that before, it's simply what it sounds like. I went away for a couple of days and just didn't talk. And as I was building up to this, I, I was in Indiana with some of Laura's family and, and her uncle was a pastor for many years. And I thought he could you know, understand what I was doing because to some people it's strange. And I just said, you know, I'm, I'm going for a silent retreat for a, a couple of days. And my seven-year-old was, was in the back of the car. And, and I hear this little voice say, you're going on a retreat where you don't talk for two days. And I said, yeah. And she said, huh, that's going to be really hard for you. Uh, you're always talking. <laughs> just like just the words of wisdom of a small child who knows her father fairly well. And, and so I get to be back with you this week, and I'm glad to be talking again. Uh, and we're in this series, in this book, First Corinthians. It's a first century letter written by a guy called Paul. He writes to churches, mainly to churches that he has started at some point. This is a church he started in about 51 AD. It's probably now around 53 AD. It's maybe the first letter he ever wrote. It's certainly the longest letter he ever writes. He, he spills more ink for this Corinthian church than for any other church. And, and so I want to catch you up, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, to give you a little window into what was this city like? This is a church that lands in a particular place, just like we're in a particular place right now. And we get to ask, what, what, what's, what church does this city need in this space, in this time? And Paul obviously plants this church in, in a town called Corinth. And what Gordon Fee says is this, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. This place was a port city. It had tons of wealth coming into it. People grew very rich. It was very diverse, lots of different types of people. It was liberal. You know the saying, what happens in Vegas? The Corinthians invented that phrase. They didn't say Vegas, obviously, because Vegas didn't exist. But, but you might have said, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. This was a place where almost anything went. In actual fact, a first century writer, Strabo, says this, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Corinth was like the seedy underbelly of the Mediterranean world, and this is where that first church lands. They are a long way from Jerusalem. Now, long way away from the ethics of a Jewish society, they're now very much in this Greek world where ethics just look different. What we might say is this, Corinth was rich, Corinth was liberal, Corinth was diverse. Corinth is us. 
Corinth is 21st century America, maybe a city just like Denver, no port admittedly, but, but a city where there's all of these different things and this is where the church has to land and, and do more than survive, it has to thrive. This is a city that has particular cultures. It is in Greece, so it has a Greek culture, but it was started by Romans or redeveloped by Romans, so it has a Roman culture and then there's a, a strong Jewish presence there. Everything except this new Christian way, that the culture is wildly different. And the first thing Paul says to this church, just just as a reminder, is this. This is chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, now brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. When you find out some of the things that are going on in this church, Corinth, you might say, these are the holy people people? These don't seem like the holy people. These seem like the broken, messed up people. And yet Paul's word to them is, you and I, when we feel like we're all over the place, when life doesn't make sense, when we feel like we're getting it wrong, the word is, you are saints. You are chosen. You are set apart. God has picked you, is his language. I don't know if you ever need that reminder, but I definitely at times need that reminder. Uh, Paul moves on to kind of, I would say his question, his big thesis, the thing he's trying to figure out with this letter is this question. How does the church survive with all these cultures around it? How does it, and maybe even better, how does it thrive with all these cultures around it? How does the church that Jesus started this small Jewish sect initially that has spread in this book Acts that we studied maybe last year, but now is becoming somewhat codified, is becoming maybe more officially starting to have a practice, a way of being. How does it survive when every other culture around it is more significant than it is? Maybe you feel like that doing church today in the 21st century. How, how do you do church when all the other cultures say, no, that, that's not no way to live, and, and Paul's reminder is, it all centers on Jesus and his work in you and for you. That's what it is to be a, a saint in his language. It's not on you. It's not completely on you, at least. It's not completely on me that the foundation, as we'll see in, in, in a little while, is, is Jesus and what he did. His death, his resurrection, he, he's the one that makes all this possible. It's his church. He's, he's going to build it. It's his church. He's the centerpiece, his work, but, but an extension of that as well. And how you live that out in the in front of a watching world. Does the way of Jesus make sense to those around it? Maybe not, but is there something compelling about it? well lived? I would suggest yes. That's always been the magic of the church. In in the first century when plagues hit big cities and everybody left and the followers of Jesus stayed, did it seem wise? Did it seem the intelligent thing to do? No, but did it seem profound? Did it seem captivating to a group of people watching? Oh, absolutely. To watch a group of people that said, we're willing to face sickness and even death to care for the people who are the least, there was something compelling about that. Somewhere the, the world craves something better, a better way to live, and, and if they were to watch the church, the question becomes, do they see anything worth better, worth more than, than the, the way that they might live or the, the way everybody else lives? Maybe that's your tension point with church. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've kind of got a little cynical about church because you've said, I don't see anything 
different. In actual fact, sometimes, maybe what I see is a little bit worse. Like, does this thing really make a difference? That isn't a new story. That, that concern, that story has, has been around for a while. Check out, th this is a quote from Bonaventura Duretti. He was an anarchist in Spain in the 12th century. He said this, the only church that illuminates is a burning church. The only church that illuminates is a burning His mode of thinking was burn them all down. He'd seen the Inquisition. He was heartbroken over what it was doing to people, what it was doing to families. And he said, get rid of them all. Is that language very much different than we hear from someone like Sam Harris today who would say something very similar? He would say religion kills. It's Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. God is the problem in some people's minds. That is not a new story for people to say that, that this story doesn't make a difference. And, and, and so this, this story had to be lived out in front of a watching world. It had to make sense. It had to make a difference. Otherwise, the only church that illuminates, well, it is a burning church. And so Paul has begun with Jesus as this foundation. Jesus is the thing that makes a difference. And, and as Dan told us last week, specifically around this, this, this idea of the cross, this wisdom that doesn't seem like wisdom, something that to the Greek people seemed like, like nonsense, to the Jewish people seemed like this old-fashioned word anathema. It seemed impossible that God would move in this way. So, so somewhere, Paul says that Jesus and his cross, as, as bizarre as that might seem, that, that is the foundation to the church. And now he's going to unpack for this first century group of followers, this is how you live. This is what it takes. This is what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. And, and he's going to give us three metaphors. Now, now, we picked a big metaphor for this series. For those of you that missed week one, I had a cello on stage, and, and I said I was going to play for you Bach's Cello Suite, this beautiful piece of music that every note is well thought through and captivating. The problem is I don't really play the cello. I couldn't give you that music, even though I think it's beautiful and profound and, and every note is perfect. I couldn't offer you that piece of music. I, I believe in it. I just don't know how to play it. Th that's sometimes what it is, I think, maybe to follow Jesus, to, to live in his way. You look at the things he said and say, I want to be all of those things, but, but there's, a, there's a problem and it's me. I'm, I'm struggling with all of that. Paul's going to start to unpack some of the things this church needs to do to do that well, and he's going to pick three metaphors. And, and I love metaphors, so I'm excited by his three metaphors. I also have, I've discovered, a propensity for mixing metaphors. When I was first writing my thesis, I sent the first page off to uh, my supervisor, and he sent it back with red ink all over it, and he said, step one, lose the mixed metaphors. You just roll from one illustration to another, and it just, it doesn't really go anywhere. I was, I was heartened to find that Paul does something similar. I feel like I'm in good company. Now, if you, if you don't know what a mixed metaphor is, let me give you some examples. It, it's essentially what, when you go from one picture image to another one, and it doesn't always follow literally. So here's a, a few examples. This is from the political world. Mr. Sme Speaker, I, I smell a rat. I see him floating in the air, but mark me, sir, I will nip him in the bud. We've moved to different illustrations all over the place. How about this one? So now what we are dealing with is the rubber meeting the road, and instead of biting the bullet on these issues, we just want to punt. We've gone from roads to bullets and now to football. 
The walls had fallen down and the windows had opened, making the world much flatter than it had ever been. But the age of seamless global communication had not yet dawned. I'm not sure this guy knows what he's talking about. And then finally, this appealed to my Britishness. This is awfully weak tea to have to hang your hat on. This is awfully weak tea to have to hang your hat on. I don't know if you still hang hats, and I don't know if you hang them on weak tea, but if you do, uh, apparently you're in trouble. There's all of these different ideas that float around in these metaphors, and Paul does the same thing, I would say. The first metaphor seems kind of insulting. The first metaphor is he likens the Corinthians to a group of children, babies, that still need bottles, that still need milk. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. He's, he's throwing his mind back to the time that he first encountered them. A couple of years ago, he'd begun with the simple things with milk, and now he's writing to them again, and, and he says this, indeed, you are still not ready. You're still not ready. Two years on, you're, you're in the same place. Now, this must have cut pretty deep for this group of people, this Corinthian church, because they prized one thing particularly. They prized knowledge, or how they would term it, wisdom, and they would have considered that they'd grown considerably in that knowledge and wisdom in fact, you could say that some of the tension of this letter is that they actually now think that they're wiser than Paul is. That there's some disagreement about who has true wisdom, so they see themselves as the ones that have wisdom, and Paul has spent the last couple of chapters of his letter before chapter three unpacking what, what is real wisdom. Real wisdom is the wisdom of God that isn't always the wisdom of this world. Real wisdom is the cross, which may not seem like wisdom. Real wisdom is love, which is to lay down your life for another. That may not seem like wisdom. And Paul has argued very particularly there's, there's, there's real wisdom, and then there's what the Corinthians have. And now he comes to them, and, and he says this, you are still not ready for the, the, the real stuff, the meat. You're still like babies needing a bottle, at least in spiritual terms. I would suggest this Corinthian church has a passion, a deep passion, one that I think we have they have a passion for knowledge. And in their mind, knowledge equals maturity. And what Paul says is this, knowledge can help you get to maturity, but it isn't in and of itself enough to be mature. There's something else that's required. Paul refuses to accept that maturity is simply about gaining knowledge. It is not the Corinthian church's lack of knowledge that concerns him, it's that their lack of unity, this problem that he's talked about multiple times, the way that they disagree with each other, that actually reveals that they're really not mature at all. It is their lack of unity that is a reflection of their lack of maturity. Paul's first metaphor seems to say to this church that craves knowledge, craves information, maturity, well, that's a character thing. It's not a knowledge thing. His first request to them is you, you need to grow up as a community. You need to grow up as individuals. That, that word grow is fascinating how, in terms of how it works within the Bible. In the book Luke, we, we hear the unfolding of Jesus' early story. We, we get to see, for the only time in any of the biographies of Jesus' life, we get to see what it was like for Jesus to be a child. And, and there's this fascinating use of the word grow. In English, it appears three times in the first couple of chapters. In Greek, it appears three times too, but with two different words. The, the first couple of times, it comes along with this word 
that means grow organically. Same way that you might talk about a baby that's growing in a mother's womb, a child just growing in size. The third time, it uses a different word. It says this, and Jesus grew in wisdom and maturity and in favor with God and man. The, the word grow there is this Greek word prokopto. In literal terms, it, it's this word that means to beat a path. So for those of you that have lawn or land to take care of, you know that moment where you let the weeds grow up too much and, and, and they block the shed that you keep the mower in and so you've got you to beat them all back before you can get to the device you need to actually do the lawn, cutting that experience of overgrowth, that experience that we were talking about with the school that we're going to care for. The weeds now hold the small children within them and now when you go cut them back, you have to make sure there's no small children in them before you cut them down. This, this feeling of, I've got to beat a path down, that's what that word means. It's grow on purpose. Grow on purpose. Choose to participate with God into growing into what you're supposed to be. And, and this is the heartbeat of what Paul is getting at with this Corinthian church. You haven't grown. You haven't grown. It's been two years. You've learned more stuff, but you're still the same people. To take my cello illustration, it's two years and you still you're still playing Jaws. You still haven't figured out the next notes. You still haven't learned anything. You still haven't grown in your ability to play the notes of Jesus. You've got information, sure, but it hasn't changed you. It hasn't changed anything. The first illustration is a baby and a bottle and a request that they might grow up. And then he moves quickly to the image of a farmer and a field. Indeed, you are still not ready, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? He's talking about their desire to just follow different leaders, to take up different people's ideas really quickly. After all, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task, his, his request here is, Corinthians, yes, grow up, become wiser, but, but also be careful who you follow and be careful that you know why. When, when we think about that image of a church that the world is watching, perhaps one of your other concerns, perhaps something else that has occurred to you is that at times we, we have cause to be particularly embarrassed about leaders within the church. We, if we've been around for a while, are familiar about stories of churches that looked great, looked like they were thriving, and then we find that the undercurrent is, is one that is truly toxic. And, and maybe the, the challenge has been for us that we've respected and, and perhaps from, from a distance followed those leaders, and then we've seen what happens in the end and said, that doesn't seem like Jesus. When Paul's talking about this church and, and who they might be, he talks about their own need for maturity, but when he talks about their leaders, he, he says you have to be careful who you follow because uh, leadership is a servant thing and not a power thing. And doesn't that sound like Jesus? Jesus who unpacked that a leader would serve and, and that he had served each of his followers and, and now they should serve each other. It's fascinating that that picture of servant leadership is a truly Jesus thing. It's, a, it's almost an idea that starts with him, but it's actually everywhere all over the world too. This is a quote from Lao Tzu. A king came to him and asked, how, how do I get people to follow me? And, and this is what he says. All streams flow to the sea because it is lower than they are. Humility gives it its power. If you want to govern the people, you must place yourself below them. 
If you want to lead the people, you must learn how to follow them. Paul, Paul's first request is take care of your own maturity, but to be careful who you follow and why you follow that particular person. He wants to make it very clear it's not about that person, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about anyone who might stand up on a stage. And isn't that fascinating? It's about God who makes it grow. Just yesterday, I was doing dinner with the family, and I pulled one of my tomatoes, or my tomatoes, off, off a plant, and I, I, I cut it up and said, does anyone want uh, some of this tomato? And they all said, no. And I said, but I made this tomato. And my smart mouth 10-year-old said, you didn't make anything. God made the tomato. You can't make it grow. Sure, you participated. Sure, you were involved, but you didn't make it happen. This is Paul's language to this Corinthian church. These leaders, the ones that you think are so significant, they don't make it happen. They get to be co-workers is the language. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, and God is working amongst you. The first metaphor is about maturity, and, and it's an individual thing. The second thing is about leadership and how it operates in the church and, and what can make a church thrive in this particular place. And then, because he's Paul, he can just switch metaphors really quickly, and we move from God's field to now God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The, the metaphor now is you're a building, you're a building, and there is a builder. I laid the foundation, now others are building on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's back to his original thesis, right? The thing that's going to run all the way through this letter time and time again. It all centers on Jesus and his work in you and for you. That foundation can't change, and the moment it does, the whole thing falls apart. The, the moment that a church is no longer, that's no longer the foundation, in Paul's mind, it's no longer a church. It's the central thing. You might say the only thing. The, there's a show I love to watch. Uh, it's called Grand Designs. They take houses and turn them into something wonderful. And one episode, it's actually known as the saddest episode, features this particularly ugly 1970s house not far from where I used to go on vacation when I was growing up. Someone wanted to take it and build it into something else. Why take this awfully ugly house and pay a lot of money for it? It's because this is the view from out of the front of the house, you get just miles of ocean. I wanted to make sure you were correctly orientated, so I threw this in there for you, just so you knew which direction we're looking, kind of roughly where we are. This is not to scale, just to, to point out, but there we go. It looks out west over the beautiful Atlantic Ocean, and he took it to try and build something wonderful. He wanted to build this. It's a house that was supposed to cost him two million dollars. And, and what he found really quickly was this, the land he was building on was sandstone. And you can't build on sandstone, it just slowly falls apart, crumbles away, and the beautiful house that you built now ends up in the ocean. So he found what he had to do was this, he had to drill down to hit bedrock and, and to drill just to set a foundation, just to make sure the building stood was to cost him about 
dollars just to get a foundation in place. Of course, the house never was built for $2 million or anything like it. It ended up around $8 million, but it's a picture of what it takes, right? What a foundation means. Paul's image for the church is that you are a building. I am part of this building. The foundation, though, the foundation is only Jesus. That's the thing it all rests on. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, it's an interesting list of stuff you can build with. If I'm honest, this is what it reminds me of. It's like the three little pigs story, right? You've got to think about your building materials. Are you building with straw like the, the, the bad pig or the sticks like the bad pig? Or no, there's the brick one that you're supposed to build off. Paul doesn't, he, it doesn't give any judgment, interestingly, on these things. But the implication is you've got to ask which one will survive, which one will last. But he gives us no real framework for knowing what we might build and, what, and how we might know it will last. He just simply says there's things you can build in this church world. Some of them won't last. Some of them will fall apart. Some of them will last. Now, that's true in, in just in this life, right? One of the things I love about South is it's this community that's been around for a long time. I mean, 40-odd years just as South Fellowship, but back before that historically as well, we've changed lead pastor multiple times, and the church is still here and still asking what its calling is in this neighborhood. But, but that's unusual. The big crisis for any church plant is the moment the founder leaves, the, the moment the founder dies, and then you get to ask, was it worth building? Is it going to last now? And, and so often with any business of any kind, it doesn't, but, it, but it's very prevalent in church. The, the work sometimes doesn't even last just in this world, but, but Paul is saying there's also this measuring of it in another world as well. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And then he tweaks his metaphor just a little bit, because when you've changed three times, what's a tweak? He says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Paul takes his image of a Jewish temple where they believe God's presence dwelt and said, you as a group gathering, even in Corinth, even in this place where all this stuff is happening, even you, you broken people, even you that are getting it wrong, even you that aren't sure that you're really saints, you are God's temple. He's present here in a particular way. As we get into future weeks, it's going to be fascinating to, to unpack what Paul thinks is a temple and what they think is a temple. Because Greek temples were very different to Jewish temples, and, and things were allowed in Greek temples that were never allowed in the Jewish temple. And so we start to see some of the ways their thinking is a little bit unclear on what exactly Paul means. But he says, no, you are, you're a temple. God is present here. But what's interesting to me is this. In all Paul's language, all he's talking about now, this idea of a building, is, is a reminder that this, this faith thing, it isn't primarily just an individual thing. He wants us to know that this is something we're building together. Lots of people build. Almost anyone, it seems, from his 
his metaphor can be involved in building, uh, but the idea seems to be that what is built here is a corporate thing uh, and not a solo thing. We together, as we do church, in the same way this Corinthian church were allowed to do church, get to ask this question, God, what are we called to create here? Yes, the foundation has to be Jesus, but what is needed in this place? What is needed here? What do you long for us to be shaped like? There's certain things that just go with being a church, but then there's a whole other bunch of stuff that we get to wrestle with together. But when we go for it, when we look for a takeaway for this week, I have a question there. I wonder, do we need a fourth metaphor? Because as much as Paul's given us all of this rich stuff to work with, I love to take something Paul says and place it alongside another thing that he says just to see how it informs the other thing. Like the, 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 this passage so far, what I'm getting is this corporate nature. What I'm getting is you are a building, you are together, you are one thing that God has created, and that's an important message. But some way you and I need to know that we go away and God is shaping us individually. I need to know what God has for me right now, what he's asking me to do, how he's forming my life. And, and when we flip over to Ephesians, another letter Paul wrote, what we read is this, for we are God's masterpiece. We individually, each of us are an artwork that God has created. That's what that word means. He picks this word poema, and he says, you and I are art. We're a thing that he is creating. Now, what I love about that image is this. It doesn't say that God is a critic. It says he's an artist. I don't know about you. I often receive God and think I experience him as a critic. What does a critic do? A critic goes to a restaurant and says, this is good or bad. Critic looks at a piece of art and says, this is its flaws. This is where it's mistakes are made, looks at a piece of pottery and says, this is where it's broken. And then the critic moves on. The artist is involved with the work. The artist is deeply passionate about it, cares for it, has shaped it, is maybe continuing to shape it. And when I read in Ephesians that God is, yes, interested in this temple according to what we read in Corinthians. He's interested in all of us, what this is shaped to be. But, but when I read in Ephesians that I am his masterpiece, that he's created, that he cares for, it's something I deeply need to hear. God is an artist and he's not a critic. But so often we experience him as the second. We experience him as someone who is aware of all our flaws and constantly pointing them out. It doesn't seem like that's Paul's picture at all. God is an artist who is deeply passionate about his work. And so what I might ask you is this, is how is God forming your life right now? If, if an artwork is a piece of work that you form, that you shape, and the, the most classic definition of poema, this, this, this word is, is pottery, of a potter making a pot. Like how, how are you experiencing and forming you right now? In the good and in the bad, in the laughter and in the tears? Because if you've been around for a while, I'm guessing you know that often it's, it's the hard stuff that you experience that formation. I've just experienced in the last 
few weeks, just a few different things. But just in processing, I'm like, that, that was harder than I thought. And it wasn't just turning 40, a bunch of other stuff too. Somewhere there's those moments you suddenly say, God, I, I am experiencing you transforming me in that. And I don't like it. I don't find it comfortable. And yet I sense that you're working. The, the writer Hilary Mantle says this, you come to this place midlife, you, you don't know how you got here, but suddenly you're staring 50 in the face when you turn and look back down the years, you glimpse the ghosts of other lives you might have led all the houses are haunted. The wraiths and phantoms creep under your carpets in between the warp and the weft of fabric. They lurk in wardrobes and lie flat under drawer liners. You keep it filled, you keep it filed in a drawer of your consciousness like a short story that never worked after the opening lines. Now, if you want an example of mixed metaphors, well, that's just a wonderful example, but it's also got this deep poignancy to it as well. These are my experiences and I'm weighing them and wondering about them. And, I'm, and it doesn't take away the joy in life in this moment. You may be very happy with what you, what you are and where you are, but, but there are all of these things, perhaps, that she gets to like the nub of. She captures so well in her language. All of the experiences that we have are God's forming of us, it seems. If God is an artist, I wonder what kind of artist best represents him. For a moment, I wondered if it was Michelangelo who was just able to capture so much in one place, who gave his life to this Sistine Chapel, informing it to the point that he became disabled. He couldn't see anymore because of his years of staring at the ceiling. And he writes a poem about just how hard that has been. And, and if you've read it, you know why he's an artist and not a poet, because it's a terrible poem, but he wrote it anyway. But, but I wondered if he was Michelangelo. I wondered if he was Rembrandt Van Rijn with his ability to capture one story in one image, if he's Marc Chagall with his ability to walk, work with all of these different types of materials. But I actually think the artist that reminds me most of God in his way of working is this guy. It's Bob Ross. He's Bob Ross who has those moments in almost every show I've watched of his where he does something to a painting and I say, you've ruined that painting. And then you find that he has this wonderful way of working it back into the artwork. And I say that maybe God is like that in our life so often. There are things that we look at and say, that doesn't feel right. That stroke seems out of place. The pottery shouldn't be formed that way. And yet, and yet I just wonder if there's a way that the artist has of working that we miss. Maybe the question isn't how is God forming you? It is how is God forming or re forming your life. What particular experience comes to mind right now that says this is where he is working? This is where he's working. The writer Job captures some of that struggle where he talks about experiencing God in two different ways. He talks about on the right hand or the left hand. It's this old Hebrew idea of, of the right hand is, is the everyday. And then he, he talks about this left hand experience. And he says, but that's that's where he works, in the place where he seems invisible, the place where I'm not sure where he is or what he's doing. That's the place that I'm formed. But there's something more here. Yes, I love the artwork. I love that God is an artist forming my life, forming your life, perhaps reforming our lives. But this phrase, this passage says he's doing it for a reason. 
You are God's masterpiece, formed by him for good works. We hear works and our immediate thought is actions to do nice things. I've had to do that when I was back in the Cub Scouts. We had to do nice things for people for a whole bunch of days. But that's not the heartbeat of the passage. Just like poema is to be a piece of artwork, to, to be a thing an artisan would make, this word ergois is, is the work, is a work in itself. It is a piece that is created. Essentially, the heartbeat of the passage is God made you an artwork to make other pieces of art. It's the same word that Paul will use when he talks about this Corinthian church. If what has been built, if Ergos survives, the builder will receive a reward. You, it seems, I, it seems, am somewhere called to be artists too. And so maybe another question I might ask us is how, how are you participating in that work with God? What is it that you and he are co-creating together? Sometimes I spend a lot of time worrying about the stuff that isn't really co-creating. Sometimes I spend a lot of time dreaming about what it is to own more stuff. And yet you think about every movie you've ever seen. Have you ever seen a movie where someone wants to buy a new car and slowly they save up the money for it and then they, they get the car and they get the keys and they drive it home and they pull it into the driveway and then they get out and they go and they sit in their house with the car on the drive and that's the end of the movie. That's never a story. That's never anything worth living or worth showing on screen. And, and I just wonder how often that's the lives that we focus on. It seems there's so much more for us to participate in. The writer Brian McLaren says he prays of his relationship with God. What are we together? We are artists and work in progress, but I think it's something more. And I read this somewhere and I can't find it. I went back and looked for it. So I'm going to claim it as my own, at least for the moment, until someone else points out who said this phrase. But, but I think you are both work of art and artist at work. God created you for something and is forming you, and yet he made you to form other good things to be involved in this story and in this journey. So maybe the final question is this. What will you co-create with God? What will you and I co-create with God? Somewhere this Paul takes this Corinthian church and he begins with their own maturity. He says it's time, friends, to grow up. He asks them who they're following and why and says that you'll only be as good as the leaders that you follow. And, and then he talks about us as a corporate entity, this, this thing, this temple that God is shaping and says it's made to be something wonderful with this foundation of Jesus. But now, what will it be beyond that? And then finally and reassuringly, somewhere he also says, you are made as a piece of artwork. You are made by your creator who loves you who isn't a critic who just wants to observe, but is an artist deeply involved in the work, deeply passionate for you and what you are becoming. Let's pray. Let's stand together. God, I love Paul and his writing of metaphors, and I believe that you gave him these different metaphors, and perhaps the joy of those metaphors is that wherever we are, there's something that speaks to each of us. I love how Paul writes these metaphors to a church and says, God, you will speak where you need to speak. And perhaps the question for each of us is, which metaphor 
resounds? Which one reverberates around our minds and hearts as we ponder for just a second? Is it the metaphor of maturity? How am I growing? How have I replaced genuine maturity with knowledge? Paul later will say to this church, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Maybe it's a question of leadership. Who are you following? Why? Who influences you? Who mentors you? What do you see that you love? What do you see, if you're honest, that's a problem? Maybe you have questions about your role in the building of a community. Maybe you wonder if you have a seat at the table and and Paul says this is something that we do together. And maybe your question is about yourself. Maybe there's a piece of the work that God is creating that you're deeply uncomfortable with. Maybe if you, you question whether he values this artwork at all. Maybe even hearing yourself described as artwork causes you heartache. Maybe you question whether you're even a piece of art that anyone would want to look at. However you wrestle with this text, the invite is to come back to the foundation, the foundation which is Jesus. He is the thing on which we build our lives. He is the thing on which this church is built. So God, however you would speak as we sing, would you speak to each one of us? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.